As parents, we want our children to be happy. Of course we do. But we also want them to work hard and to do their best at school and in particular in exams. But why wouldn't we? Doesn't it sometimes feel, though, that those two goals are poles apart? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this series, I talk to a range of experts, parents and students about how we can get the most out of studying at home. From nutrition to sleep and from stress to mental health, we'll be exploring how best to support our young people. There'll be a new episode out every Friday morning, so subscribe, review and don't be afraid to share with others who you might think will benefit from what our experts are saying. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking to Dr Andy Cope. Andy is a qualified teacher, a best-selling author, celebrated motivational speaker and a genuine doctor of happiness and all-round brilliant guy. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very much looking forward to finding out how I can be a bit more brilliant. But before we dive in, I wonder if you could tell me what kind of a student you were at school your favourite subject, um, exams, that kind of thing? Uh, yes, uh, way before you were around, mate, I went to school, so I'm a bit long in the tooth now. Uh, school days were genuinely the best days of my life, absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed school. I wasn't a particularly uh, clever student, so I did O-levels back in the day, didn't do very well. And it's interesting, actually, I'm an author and I've managed to sell lots of books, but uh, I failed English at school, which is kind of quite interesting. But I loved it. I was, I was in the day, mate, where PE was a kickabout of football or a game of tennis, but it wasn't a qualification. And I was speaking to my wife the other day that if PE, it was the only thing I was good at, was sport. If it had been an actual qualification when I was growing up, I would have absolutely done it at A-level and degree, and my life would have been gone in a completely different direction. That's kind of unusual, isn't it? Because for many of us, there are loads of things that we as um, parents and grown-ups don't relish. Um, so that, that Monday morning alarm... Um, and signalling we have to go to work. And for young people, it tends to be that thought of going to school or studying for exams. Is that just a fact of life, that, that there are things that we have to grin and bear? Well, it's, that's interesting. I mean, if we go right back, if let's go back before that question, really, and before the start of it all, is is human beings have learned behaviour. So we learn that Mondays are bad and Fridays are good. There's a really, I mean, I do mostly adulty workshops now, but if I, you know, who, who says? Who says? If I tell your average, your listeners that the average lifespan is 4,000 weeks, Right now, if you tell that to a bunch of kids in primary school, they leap around going, oh, my gosh, that's like forever. Thanks for sharing it. That's brilliant news. But if you announce it to teachers or adults or whoever's listening to this is an adult population, there'll be a collective kind of tumbleweed moment as people realize that, what, 4,000 weeks? Is that actually true? Because that doesn't sound very many. And it seems ridiculous because I went for about 30 years of my life also falling into the trap that Mondays are bad and Fridays are good. So I look around at everybody else and you do, it's called social learning. So what you do is nobody else seems to like Monday, so you join in with the crowd. And once again, a question for the listeners is, you spend a seventh of your entire life on Monday. So that's a seventh of most people's life that they're getting irritated by and they've written it off as something to get through. And, and it, I'll put to you a really big thought before we even go, before we start properly, is that what if Mondays and Fridays are completely neutral? And you spend a seventh of your entire life on Monday, the same as you spend a seventh of your entire life on Friday. And therefore, Fridays only become Mondays only become bad because of how I've learned to think about it. And I think the whole positive psychology thing that I want to try and twist this around to 
is life is a short and precious gift, my friend, and most people, it's hurtling through life in a blur. The issue, therefore, is about getting into bad habits of thinking early on. And if I, if I link that story, that Mondays and Fridays, to a, a, an, an experience I had in Sheffield, delivering some of my art of being brilliant classes to year six, and there was a little girl rolling her eyes there, and it was Monday, and I said, what's the matter? Oh, she says, I've had enough. I said, what do you mean you've had enough? Oh, it's Monday morning, I've had enough. She says, I can't wait to retire. And this, this girl was 10 years old, mate, and she's already kicked her happiness into the long grass 60 years away. And teachers and parents, is my, my, my question for you is, where are kids learning that from? They're learning it from us. Your children won't do what you say but they will do what you do. So if you want your kids to be positive and upbeat and confident and vibrant and what I call flourishing, which is this leakage of positive emotion, then you have to go first. So how do we how do we do that? Then I mean, because I myself, I've got many years now of this ingrained thing of. Uh, I think we can just <laughs> leave it at that. So how, how do I how do I abandon that way of thinking to become more and um, more positive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here we go. I spent the last 12 years uh, at Loughborough Uni researching positive psychology, which is essentially the science of well-being and the science of human flourishing. If you think about it, for, for 140 years since psychology was invented as a subject, it's been exclusively about illness. What we would do is we would learn about what was wrong with you, and then we're going to give you some therapy or some counselling or some medication to make you better. And that's what psychology was for 140 years since it was invented. And if you think about it, psychology's missed an open goal. So for 140 years, we have literally never, ever studied people who are already happy. I mean, it's like the most obvious open goal in the world that's been missed. So, so what I decided back in 2005 now, which is quite a long time ago at Loughborough Uni, was to seek out the handful of people you can think of in your life. And everybody can just think of a handful, no more than that. The people in your life who've got something about them. There's an energy. There's a passion. There's a something going on that makes you feel good when they're in the room. And it's what I call the two percenters. And flourishing is a really important word in my research because it's bigger than happiness. So you already know that you, when you're happy, that's good for you. But what I've been looking at is these, these small percentage of people who they are uplifting for the rest of the world as well. And that is where you need to position your parenting and your teaching. Because if you're feeling so amazing that other, the kids will catch it off you, then they will accidentally learn loads more. Now, how you do that, there's a whole raft of top tips on how you do that. But what really excites me is that it's very much a learned behavior. So we learn that Mondays and bad Fridays are good. We can therefore unlearn that and reprogram in um, I think we should be standing up for Mondays. However, because I don't know when people are going to listen to this, mate. We're currently, forgive us some context, we're recording this in lockdown. And therefore, let's acknowledge the current situation, right? It's tough out there. Mental health is getting worse. There's a lot of anxiety. We're locked down. We, we, we are, we've lost a lot of our freedoms. There's a lot of people with money worries. There's, um, I've got elderly parents. I've got a father-in-law who's nearly 90. So just because I'm a doctor of happiness doesn't mean I'm immune from feeling bad and sad and angry but what it does it allows me to bounce back from those times a whole lot quicker in fact here's an education for you there's an old english word that i just came across the other week a grinagog 
A grinagog is an 18th century word, and that's somebody who's so happy you want to punch their lights out. <laughs> and I think in, in the current, current environment, I think you weren't wandering around with a stupid grin on your face, somebody's going to punch you. So one of the things I looked at in my research, you can actually be too happy. If you've got, got a stupid smile on your face and you're grinning at people for no reason, people will think you're either simple or insincere. So getting the right amount of positivity with the right people at the right time it's about emotional intelligence really getting it right is the difficult thing i was going to say because i think if i started dancing around the breakfast table in front of my children they would they would well, they'd probably have me committed actually but they'd certainly think i was being insincere or, or unauthentic um, and that's not just because of my dance moves <laughs> Yes, and I think authenticity, that's a great word, mate. I think authenticity is really crucial here is um, I don't want anybody to be a grinagog. I don't want people, if people think you're being an idiot, then you're doing it wrong. We remember what flourishing is. Flourishing is a very precise word. That is when your happiness is bigger than you and it leaks out of you and it creates a contagion in the people around you. Um, but obviously the opposite of my two percenters, my, my people who are at the top end of the well-being graph, the opposite of the mood hoovers. <laughs> and we're all very familiar with those. There will also be two handfuls of people in your life you can think of when they're around, you feel dreadful. And they r kind of rip all the happiness from your soul. And they're not horrible people. They're just stuck in a mindset of everything's negative and everything's bad. And if you spend too long watching the news and too long with the, so those people, the mood hoovers in your life, then you'll have the happiness ripped from your soul. So all, a lot of this, is really about, I think, um, taking care of your own personal well-being. I did a session um, pre-lockdown and somebody said, isn't happiness selfish? Shouldn't you be looking after other people? And I think, no, absolutely not. Well, you should be, but your biggest gift to the world is you at your best. And if you can get yourself in tip-top physical and mental health, then other people will benefit from that. Having listened to your audiobook, um, you talk in there, about the positive psychology and talking about a feel-good factor and um, at, the, at the top end and then a, a feel-bad factor at the bottom end. And what I loved in particular was um, how you've described a feel-bad factor as you'll get up and go as got up and gone. How do we extend that, um, that top feel-good factor? I think we're back to the point where it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to have a bad day what we're trying to mitigate in positive psychology is we don't want you to have too many bad days but there's a lot of people uh, who are caught in what we call destination addiction where uh, their happiness is kicked into the long grass they're like that little girl from earlier i'll be happy when i retire and she's putting happiness off but teachers do it as well you know we we, we come alive on Friday or we're looking for, or you might have a holiday booked in three weeks and somebody says, how are you? Only three weeks to go. So accidentally counting happiness away. And I think what, uh, one of the really crucial top tips for me is what we call the, it's uh, Steve McDermott stole the top tip off him. He's a motivational speaker and he sp speaks about the four minute rule. So I think it's kind of the smallest thing that I've changed that's had the biggest impact on my life. And what that basically says is you haven't got to be happy and positive all day. You've only got to be positive for four minutes. And if you can be genuinely upbeat and positive with a smile on your face and standing tall with some confidence just for four minutes, then all other people around you will have almost no um, no choice but to join in with that. So as human beings, we're emotionally contagious. People are going to catch how you feel. We're wired to catch emotions. So if you can nail the first four minutes, so that means if I was a parent, that means the first four minutes of coming home from work. 
being genuinely the best you can be for your kids or the first four minutes of breakfast time when the kids come down for breakfast or if I was a teacher the first four minutes coming into the staff room or the first four minutes of of your class if you could just be your best self authentically for those four minutes then that will be create an emotional leakage people will feel great around you and once again don't be a dick about it don't annoy people this is a difficulty coming in on jazz hands on monday with like woohoo don't those weekends drag that's grinagog territory mate somebody's going to punch you but um shifting your your energy to those first four minutes in fact it's astoundingly powerful i used to i used to come home let me give you the old version of me and the new version of me and, and apply it to parenting so I used to come out with kids, kids a little back in the day. I'd commute from somewhere. I'd be exhausted. I'd fall through the door. And the kids run at you when they're little. That's, Dad, Dad, where have you been? Dad, we've missed you. And I'd be batting them off. Oh, you know, Dad, can I tell you about school? No, let me tell you about the M1. Oh, my God, what a nightmare. At least let me sit down and you know before you jump all over me. And I would come home like the most average dad in the world. And then the question in my head changed. And the question is, it's a very powerful question, is how would the best dad in the world go through that door? And Nathan, I already knew the answer to that. The answer was like he really wanted to, but I wasn't doing it. So I decided the very next day, okay, I'm, I'm going to be the best dad in the world. What's stopping me? The only thing stopping me doing that is me. So I committed to being the best dad in the world for, for four minutes. And to cut a long story short, I burst through the door full of energy, full of happiness, full of passion. I thought instead of the kids jumping on me, I'm going to jump on them. So I'm all over them like a rash. Oh, my little lovelies, tell me about school. How was school? Was it good, fantastic or brilliant? So not how was school boring what did you learn can't remember change the question tell me about the most amazing thing what was good fantastic and brilliant and I have to say about half an hour later the kids were still chatting to me about how brilliant their day had been and that was sadly that was the first conversation that I'd ever had with the kids of, of such passion and all that had changed was me <laughs> four minutes of being brilliant doesn't sound too hard it's doable isn't it fella it's doable I want to go back to what you just talked about a second ago about this um, destination addiction. And you talked about it in terms of something that we're kicking our happiness into the long grass. We're waiting for this, this amazing thing, um, whether it's holiday, whether it's end of lockdown. Can the converse be true as well? And I'm thinking about our kids that have got exams coming up or um, they're thinking about, oh, I can't see my friends at the moment. I don't know when it's going to end. Can destination addiction be uh, something that holds us back it's definitely kicking your happiness into the wrong time zone and a, a lot of a lot of um i mean mindfulness is a big thing now and which is i describe it as the sort of oldest happiness trick in the in, in the book really and, and mindfulness if we, if we go back to the destination addiction thing so most people are put, teachers for example are putting happiness off to half term or to the summer term or to christmas or to when they retire kids similarly Kids, even at age eight, have learned that Mondays and bad and Fridays are good, right? So we've all got this human condition of putting happiness into a different time zone, which is where mindfulness comes in really importantly because mindfulness basically tells us that all we've ever got is... We haven't got 4,000 weeks. That was a lie. What we've all got is now. So your entire life is lived in the present moment. And I struggled with this for a long time, fellow. In fact, at last back end of last year, I went to India for three months. I had a... My wife called it a midlife crisis. It wasn't. It was just me taking, after 30 years of work, do you know what? I'm just going to have three months off, me in a backpack, and I'm going to go to India. And I had this romantic vision of I was going to go up into the Himalayas and stay in a monastery, and I was going to grow a beard, and I was going to sit in my loincloth and sit with my legs crossed for three months and come back enlightened. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I loved India, but I hated the... I don't have to sit for three weeks with my legs crossed to understand 
that all I've got is the present moment. So what mindfulness does is make you realize that your entire life is lived in the now. So all the past that you've got, you can only access those memories from this present moment. And all the future that you've got, the holiday you've been looking forward to so much, that holiday, the future doesn't exist in mindfulness because when you get to that holiday, that will also be your present moment. So what mindfulness does for me is knocks me out of destination addiction and makes me realize that if, if I can fall in love with this moment, because it's all I've got, then actually I've fallen in love with life itself. And that takes me so deeply into being in the, in the moment. And I don't want to do it all the time. I'm an average bloke from Derby. Right, so I'm not particularly guru at it, but my gosh, it's helped my well-being no end. And how do you reconcile that with doing something that you don't necessarily want to do? Then, so if we think about studying and um, revising and things that actually might actually hinder my moment now, but I've still got to do them. You've got to do them, and we've all got to do them, haven't we? There will be something fantastic in every moment once you stop and you notice it. It's a bit of an acquired taste, I must admit. But I mean, if you, if you want a top tip on how to revise, then the four minute rule is perfect for teenagers and kids is just throw yourself into it for four minutes. And what you'll find is, oh my gosh, I'm in it. And then those four minutes become an hour. So actually just being genuinely enthusiastic about whatever you've got to do just for your four minutes will help you get over that. Uh, well, Mel Robbins does the five, counted backwards from five to one. The five second, Mel Robbins five second rule is even simpler than the four. It's the same thing, but she talks about she was having a bad time in life she didn't want to get out of bed. So she invented the, the five-second rule. She counts backwards from five to one. So you know when your alarm goes in the morning and it's dark and you don't want to drag yourself out of bed? The longer you lie there, the more your brain will make up excuses why you don't want to get out of bed. So you talk yourself out of it, the self-doubt creeps in. But if you, if you can count back to five, four, three, two, one and take the action and leap out of bed, then you've, got, you've taken the action quicker then your brain can can come up with self-doubt. So so kids, if you don't want to do something, teenagers, you don't want to do something, then just count backwards from five, four, three, two, one, boom, throw yourself into it. And what you'll do is that overcomes any inertia. Is that, once again, that that is much more of a of a decent top tip than I just made that sound. <laughs> Mel Robbins says it better than me. <laughs> There's definitely something in there, isn't there? That that inertia bit. And we can all absolutely, I'm sure. Um, relate to that example of lying in bed and thinking, mm, I don't want to. But if you are, if it is holiday day, if you've got to get up four o'clock in the morning to go and get your flight, actually then you're up. Then you're up and you're raring to go and screaming around and bags need to be packed and thrown into the car. But if you've got 20 minutes and you've got to have a shower and you've got to go to school... Actually, that's that's when the morning starts to to really feel yes, like it lags. And, and all these little life hacks, the four minute rule, the counting backwards from five to one, the being in the moment, is all little top tricks. With this, I said it earlier, it's learned behaviour, being a better version of you. Do you know what, fella? My life changed right about seven years ago. I was standing in, in not in church, but I had a moment in Tesco's in a place called Ashby de la Zouche. It's a very odd place to have an epiphany, right? Just hang in there. I was standing in the queue at Tesco's. And I have this blinding flash of realisation that wherever I go, I'm there. All right. Well, I know you're probably cleverer than me. You might have twigged that. But I hadn't really, uh, at a level that I'd never thought about. So I was standing there in, in Tesco's going, oh my gosh, I'm actually in Tesco's in Ashby de la Zouche. Then I went through the checkout and I got in my car and I was driving home. And I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm actually in my car driving home from Tesco's. And then I got home and I was putting my groceries away going, oh my gosh, I'm actually in my kitchen in Derby putting my groceries away. And my point being this is that I can't get away from me. So I'm trapped with me 
for every single second of those 4,000 weeks. I could put my trainers on, run down the road, but I'm still stuck with me. And you're stuck with you. And whoever's listening to this podcast, you're stuck with yourself. So if you can't get away, my, my thing is this, if I can't escape from me, then what I may as well do is get stuck with a version of me that I'm proud of. That means stuck with a version of me that's got some confidence and got some energy and got a smile on his face and got a bit of a, a mojo and got some happiness rather than the version of me from 20 years ago that didn't have a lot of that because I de- didn't know all these simple life hacks back then. I was just bog standard. So I've upgraded. I've, done, I've taken my own medicine, mate. It would be ridiculous of me to spend 12 years interviewing happy people, finding out the secrets of happiness and not applying them to myself. So this fact, the only thing I can actually do and the only thing anybody can do, I can't control COVID and I can't control Donald Trump and I can, can't, can't control Brexit and I'm not in charge of the education system, but I am in charge of me. <laughs> and that's the only thing I can upgrade. I think it would have probably been very, um, very upsetting or made you very miserable if after 12 years you hadn't found some of these secrets. And I think then you might have been all right. That might have been allowed. The thing is, dude, everything that I found out, I already knew. I think the thing, I always feel a fraud. When I introduce myself as a doctor of happiness, for example, that triggers in my head, oh my gosh, what will people think? That sounds, that's ridiculous. I started calling myself Dr. Feelgood for a while before I found that wasn't politically, socially correct in the modern world. So I was sticking with Dr. Happy. But it's so simple. The whole switching psychology on its head from the study of ill people to the study of people who are already happy is really simple. And when you talk to happy people, one of the reasons they're happy is they're not doing anything complicated. They've got this simplicity of thinking it's going on inside your head. I was looking particularly at what I call intentional strategies. So around about 50% of your happiness is genetic, right? It's your mum and dad and all that. 10% is your circumstances. But 40% of that happiness pie is down to what's going on in your head right now. And that's the 40% we've got control of moment to moment. That's the 40% that gives us hope because that's the bit we can upgrade. I love that idea that really simply it's, it's perspective. And not, not, not necessarily, I guess, with all simple things, it's, it's simple to articulate, but not necessarily simple to um, change overnight. But, but how... How you look at your own circumstance and the way that you approach them is key, it would seem, to your, um, to your happiness. It, it, it's simple, but it's not easy. And that's really important clarification, actually. It, it, the principles of positive psychology are deadly simple, but they actually can be quite difficult simply because to be, to be positive, to be one of my really happy, upbeat people that I've learned from is not just a matter of learning new things. So there's lots of things that we can learn from um, science and from Buddhism and from Hinduism that will ha- enable us to be happy. But bigger than that is part of being a better version of you is letting go of some of the old stuff. <laughs> and it's the unlearning of the the negative behaviours. That's really It's really difficult to stop doing stuff. It's easy to start new things. It's difficult to stop doing old things. And that's why people, when you get to my age, while there's hope for children, right, and there's less hope for me, is that kids haven't got the same pathways in their mind that are grooved in yet, which is why we do our stuff in schools now, because we can get kids early and get them in the right mindset. They can create the pathways that will change their lives forever. With, all, <laughs> with corporate audiences, <laughs> with adults, we're already hardwired into hating Mondays, really hardwired into, into shouting at the news. It's difficult to stop doing that. And a deep-rooted, cynical distrust of people who are happier than us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, how sad is it that we've been having this conversation whereby if you see happy people, you think they're weirdos. I mean, what have we come to when we think, what are you on? What's the matter with you? <laughs> you know, it's almost this distrust. And that's kind of a British thing, actually, because in America, if you're happy, they're like, yeah, go, go, man. They're pleased for you. Whereas in the UK, if you're happy, people are like, oh, what's got into you? You know, you, you're faking it or whatever. I mean, once again, that, that if we go back to a very simple strategy, because we're talking about this 40% of things that you are in control of in your own head that you can change your habits, is gratitude is, is not just a happiness top tip from my research, but almost every academic paper ever. And you don't need a PhD to understand that most people go through their life moaning about what they haven't got. Right? And we can look at the current situation of lockdown. We haven't got freedom. I haven't got a job. I haven't got enough money. You know, and we can get hung up on, on what we haven't got. But what you'll find is really genuinely positive, upbeat people have got a different way of thinking. They just tend to be very much more grateful for what they have got. So if everybody just got a pen and paper, and an activity that we do with kids is really simple, is write 20 things you've got in your life that you're lucky to have, but you take for granted. And if everybody just did that after this podcast, a pen and paper, 20 things that you've got in your life that you're lucky to have, but you've taken your eye off. And I can second guess what your list will be. People's list will be health will be on there. Relationships with people will be on there. And then weird things. The NHS, freedom, democracy, running water, sit down toilets, pizza. I don't know what will be on your list. But if, if tomorrow morning when you get out of bed and you look at your list of 20 things and go, oh my gosh, look at what I have got then you flipped your thinking straight away. And if you could come through life from that bedrock of gratitude, I describe gratitude as like fertilizer of happiness. It's a really uh, cool way to start living your life is looking at what you have got rather than about moaning about what you haven't got. And also something you've talked about in the past, being grateful for the things that haven't gone wrong. So you talk um, about waking up and not having toothache. <laughs> oh, genius, man. I, I love it. You know, kids get this better than adults get it. I, I can't remember. I don't know which book you've listened to, but I, I've started to ask the question and adults will look at you all perplexed. What hasn't happened that you didn't want that you haven't celebrated? All right. Now, that question takes you all out. It's like really weird. You can ask yourself 10 times, what hasn't happened that you didn't want that you haven't celebrated? And uh, so if I give you an example, I opened my curtains this morning and there wasn't a zombie apocalypse outside. Now, I didn't want there to be any zombies and there weren't any zombies, but I didn't announce to my wife, hey, guess what, Lou? No zombies again, love. Woohoo! Because she would have thought that was a weird conversation. Plus, it's very hard for your brain to celebrate something that hasn't happened. And now kids take this to another level. So one of the things we do in our workshops now in schools, get kids to come up with examples. First time I ever did it was at the Jersey Book Festival. I've got about 650 kids in the Opera House in Jersey, aged between six and nine. What an audience. And I've got, a, so it's an Opera House. I've got a huge um, stage and a, a 50 foot sort of um, PowerPoint behind me. So I put the question, what hasn't happened that you didn't want, that you haven't celebrated on there and ask the kids, hand, 650 hands go up straight away. Little lad, about six and a half, microphone makes its way to him. I said, what hasn't happened that you didn't want, that you haven't celebrated? And he said, um, he said, I haven't been murdered in cold blood by a ventriloquist dummy wearing a clown costume which is just a level of genius, fella, a level of genius that I can't even comprehend. So I said, did you want to be murdered by... He said, of course I didn't want to be murdered, especially not by a ventriloquist dummy, because I find them particularly scary. He says, but what, what I've learned, Andy, is I'm going to celebrate that every day. Little girl next to him, what hasn't happened, you didn't want, you haven't celebrated, she says, I went to the toilet this morning and there wasn't a crocodile in it. Now that, fella, is genius. That is therefore 
a good start to the day, isn't it? But our brains are wired in exactly the opposite way. This is why this is important. Your brain is, is a problem-spotting machine. Your brain is absolutely tuned into what is going wrong. So one bad driver ruins your entire commute. Your brain deletes the 400 good drivers. And if, you're a, if, you're a, if you've got a job, one awkward customer ruins your entire week. Your brain deletes the thousand nice customers. So actually rewiring this thinking, remember all we've got is in charge of what's going on between our ears. By beginning to celebrate some of the bad stuff that hasn't happened, <laughs> counterintuitive as that question may be, you start to look on the bright side a little bit more. I, I absolutely love that idea. I also am grateful myself that this morning there wasn't a crocodile in my toilet. That would have scared the life out of me. But I think applying that in something may be less frivolous when we think about teens. So I, I think applying it, well, what is it, you're, what is it that didn't go wrong? Or what, what is it you are grateful for? Would seem to be a way of shifting that focus away from negative energy and into something much more positive. It, it, it does. Plus, when you're feeling positive, what I didn't say earlier and probably I should have done is, so what you'll find is happy people, if you're happy right now, then all of a sudden your past seems brighter. So those things you failed at back in the day, actually you dealt with them quite well. You didn't, it wasn't an epic failure because you, you're looking at the past with rose-tinted spectacles and your future, and this is crucial with the revision, your future and your, it also looks very bright. So it's worth revising. It's worth me hanging. It's worth me working hard now because I know that working hard now creates a brighter future. But it works the opposite. If you're feeling really low now and you can't be bothered, and you're having a bad day, you're having a mood hoover day, then your past seems terrible. Not only does this present moment seem a bit grey, but all those failures in the past are looming. Oh my gosh, what an idiot I am. I messed up last exam, didn't I? What an idiot, I'll never get it. And your future doesn't look very bright. And if your future, if feeling bad now means your future doesn't look very bright, then why bother revising? Because there's no jobs anyway. So you've taught yourself out of it. So actually feeling great in this moment affects your past and your future. A halo effect of present happiness yeah beautiful well you just said it better than me ranting on about five minutes and you just nailed it and that i will now i've written that down i will use it in a future book and you will get no credit mate <laughs> <laughs> i shall i shall look forward to reading it in a future book <laughs> but that's exactly what it is it is the halo effect but with yeah so feeling great in this moment we're back to the power of now and we're back to learning to feel great in the present moment. well in return for you um for you taking my halo effect i'm going to take power of now and that will become the title of the podcast we'll delete this line and no one will know it came from you <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that fella many thanks to our doctor of happiness andy cope for sharing his insights today for many of us students and parents Revising and studying is a real drag, and the idea that we could even make it bearable feels like a bit of a win. But in actual fact, as we've just heard, it could be our mindset that's creating that situation. What we need to do is train ourselves to stop focusing on the things that haven't gone well, that lower than hopeful score or the, the faltered start to revision. And we need to start being grateful for the things that have gone well, or that haven't happened that we didn't want to. It's all about the now, and the potential that we have to be, well, brilliant. I'm certainly going to start using that four-minute rule that Andy talked about. How can I, in four minutes, be the best coach that my daughter needs when she sits down to study? And I'm absolutely going to encourage her to use that five-second rule to help combat her procrastination. Many thanks, as always, to you for listening to the Study Sessions podcast. If you feel more brilliant as a result, please rate and review us. 
And there's another episode of the Study Sessions podcast next Friday, so don't forget to subscribe. And of course, happiness can be infectious, so please do share with your friends.